Welcome to the Zeno Podcast, where we aim to discover the ways that stories shape us in society and how we make sense of chaos and answer the fundamental questions of consciousness through narrative. Now, that's a mouthful. Sounds like a lot. But uh, where the title comes from, Zeno, is it's a prefix that means strange or foreign. And we always see that in stories, uh, there's always a process of discovery that comes along with it. So making sense of the strange, making sense of chaos, um, trying to welcome new foreign ideas and strange concepts into our minds and trying to integrate that into our lives. And today, we'll be talking about how a certain type of story has helped people make sense of the chaos of the Civil War. Dr. Allred is a one of our professors and He's a Civil War scholar, enthusiast, and he has even participated in Civil War reenactments. He has published on the subject in the Journal of American Culture, and we will be discussing some of the ideas in his articles. So, Dr. Allred, what uh, got you interested in studying specifically reenactments? Well, as you know, my training is in American literature, and I had interest in the way that literature intersects with history. guy named Sir Philip Sidney way back in 17th century, I think, wrote a treatise in defense of poesy where he talked about how literature really can get closer to telling the truth about human life than history can, and proposed the idea that has been bobbled, you know, juggled around ever since then, that, that history and literature are really just two kinds of narrative, and wasn't, one isn't essentially any more true or authentic than the other. So one of my colleagues suggested, well, you've, you've been involved in Civil War battle reenacting. Why don't you write about that as a cultural phenomenon and as, as a form of narrative? Because you're living something, you're doing something, you're giving it a shape um, that has meaning and relevance to you, but you hope has meaning and relevance to a historical event. And I thought, okay, well, there's something there. Uh, Civil War reenactors is kind of a a geeky hobby, you know. It's um, why do they do it? Um, what satisfaction do they get out of it? What do they hope to accomplish? And um, what do they want to be saying about America by staging these reenactments? Sometimes for as many as fifty thousand spectators, people show out show up on a on a humid, hot summer day back east and watch these battles being reenacted. Um, that storytelling angle of it was interesting to me. And they always do them at the real places, right? As close as they can. The National Park Service won't let you reenact on National Park land. Mm-hmm. But one Gettysburg thing I did was about a mile and a half away from the border of the Gettysburg National Park, mm-hmm. and it was the same kind of landscape. So they, they try to, to do that as close to the original spot as possible. Some battle reenactments are done on the actual ground because some battlegrounds haven't been made into parks yet. They haven't been preserved. And there's this huge preservation effort involving lots of money to buy lands and set them aside. Some battlefields are forever covered. The Battle of Nashville is covered over with homes, and there's no way you could redo that unless you tore a bunch of houses down, which I don't think is going to happen. It's a very well-to-do south side of the city, um, but that's part of the same zeal is to uh, preserve that. But some of them haven't been preserved, and so the, the owners of the land will say, yeah, go ahead and reenact the battle. And that must feel even weirder to be 
reenacting a particular attack or maneuver on the same ground the original guys did. If you go visit Gettysburg National Park, you'll find a lot of people, and they, they mow down the grain the same route that Pickett's Charge took across the valley. People mm-hmm. will go and walk that route. Wow. I think in some way to kind of relive, gee, how long did it take? What were they thinking when they got to this point? What were they feeling when the shells from the Union line started to land and explode? Uh, and so I, I think a lot of people that engage history have the same kind of impulse. They don't go out and spend all the money to get uniforms and reproduction muskets and go sleep on the ground, but it's the same kind of impulse. So the Civil War was the beginning of our nation defining itself, and by reenacting it, maybe it helps us, like, create a clearer definition? Is that, would that be fair to say, or? It would be fair to say. It might be more accurate to say that it certainly changed some things permanently um, about what we were not going to be. Um, and, and sometimes scholars in the Civil War have ended up wondering, what is it we got as a result of the war? Uh, did the winners get what they wanted? Um, did the losers really give up the things they were supposed to give up? Because race issues mm-hmm. and um, marginalization of black people continued for a full century at least, and some people say it's still going on. Um, so some things were solved and some things weren't solved. Um, Robert Penn Warren, uh, poet laureate of the United States, novelist, literary critic, said uh, in a little book he wrote back in 1961 that the American Civil War um, is the beginning uh, of our sense of a nation, which is kind of strange because, you know, he's, he's kind of neglecting the American Revolution and we think of, well, that's where we started. But Warren argument, Warren's argument seems to be that a lot of things about our core were not settled until the Civil War happened. And the Civil War was also a great interruption in what people thought was just this long, wonderful uh, progress as a nation, and suddenly we're tearing each other apart for four years. Big interruption in a psychic way as well as uh, um, historical. Mm -hmm. Okay, so in terms of progress, you said the Civil War is still not over. Um, when you first started researching the Civil War, I guess, like, what issues did you see that were not quite resolved about the Civil War? Or, like, what brought you to be interested in studying the Civil War? Well, that last question is the hardest one. (laughs) I don't know really what started my interest. My brother gave me a book when I was nine years old. I didn't have any ancestors that fought in the war, uh, so often Civil War interest is a personal and family thing. With me it isn't, because all my people had gone west before the war started. Some of them were southerners, some were northerners. Um, I guess it just seemed like this grand, epic, nation-making moment when what was at stake was very clear. And in historical events, often it's not so very clear. Uh, but here it seemed to be. I, w- I was curious, for example, when I go to reenactments, finding uh, Vietnam War vets and even some Gulf War vets who participated in reenactment. Um, my experience has been people who've actually been in battle want nothing to do with war after that. 
my uncle did not let his kids have toy guns, for example. It was just too much for him. Mm-hmm. But here you have combat veterans who are participating in this kind of um, pageant theater of reenacting. Mm-hmm. And I'd ask some of them why, and uh, a lot of the answers I got was, I want to participate in something that was meaningful in a war that actually meant something. Hmm. Uh, Vietnam, the whole thing with Vietnam and American culture is we're not sure what it meant or what it was for. Um, and, and I thought that was interesting, as if they were trying to redefine their sense of what America is and why we should fight for it, because the war they fought in didn't seem to have that. But the Civil War seemed to have meaning. Do you think that the younger generation is still like apt to go out and reenact? I'm from Arizona and I've never been farther east or south like that is the furthest I've gone. And so, you know, being from there, we don't have that. Like we don't have any reenactments that I know of. And so. Oh, but you do. Oh, (laughs) I'm missing out again. (laughs) When I was active in reenactment to the, uh, the 23rd New York Infantry. That was the, uh, mm-hmm. every reenactment unit picks a historical regiment that they imitate. Okay. If there are variations in uniform, they have those, and, and they do research about the regiment. But they were uh, based in Arizona. I also mm-hmm. know there are uh, Indian Wars reenactments done with, uh, you know, post-Civil War U.S. cavalry and things like that. And sometimes those guys get hired as extras in movies. I know this oh. happens in Utah also. Yeah. I know some historical reenactment groups that they do Civil War, but they also do um, um, Frontier Wars, and they even will reenact Pioneer Treks. That got big in Utah some years ago. Mm-hmm. And now that people have built the wagons and everything and have all the equipment, they say, well, let's, let's do some more, you know. And uh, sometimes a film company hires them to... Uh, I know one group that uh, regularly does train robberies on a train called the Heber Creeper. <laughs> runs from Provo Canyon to Heber. When these guys come on board, and they're authentic down to the barest detail, and they come and rob everybody. <laughs> and then the good guys come and chase them off. And so. All right. In our previous meeting, you talked about a story about a widow and about a grave. I don't remember, well, I forget what it was, but yeah, if, if we're trying to answer the question of motivation, why do people do reenacting? It's a complicated answer. I thought it was, you know, uh, men wanting to play like boys, playing soldier, playing army, uh, being able to shoot off guns. But you can do that with a lot more comfort and less expense by firing modern guns. Um, and I thought, well, maybe it's theater and I, you know, large crowds will show up for these reenactments, but I have known reenactors to do their thing for days at a time with no audience at all. One time I was outside Flagstaff, Arizona with the 23rd Sweet New York home. and the guys from Utah that I associated with, and we did this running battle for like three days, and we just camped on the ground and ate whatever we brought on our haversacks, and there was no audience at all, mm-hmm. and everybody derived immense satisfaction for that. So theater with an audience of one, I don't know. Mm. one big reenactment I was at there was a place called Sutler's Row and Sutler's were people who drove wagons and they sold stuff to the soldiers kind of a traveling pharmacy or drugstore or convenience store and traveling 7-Eleven how's that? All right. usually they had to have licenses with the regiment they're attached to 
So the sutlers would show up. They're all dressed in authentic 19th century gear, and their products are 19th century products, combs made out of hardwood, you know, and so forth. And I was walking along there looking at things, uh, trying to figure out if I wanted to buy a new muslin shirt. And a woman dressed in black in absolutely magnificent mourner's outfit came up to me, and I'm thinking, okay, I don't know who this is. And she put her hand on my arm and she inquired, uh, said her husband had been killed in the last battle and she was looking for his regiment. She wanted to claim his body. And she had this story about how she had to leave her three children at home with somebody so she could come and get her husband. And and I wasn't sure what to say because I didn't have her script. So I Mm. did what a 19th century guy would have done. I commented generously on her husband's regiment and its fine reputation and express my condolences for her loss and how uh, the, the satisfaction she must feel knowing that he died fighting for freedom. And she said something in response, and apparently what I said worked for her, and it was fitting in. <laughs> and then uh, and I, I told her, to my best knowledge, where his, her reg- his regiment might have been, and she thanks me, and off she goes. Hmm. And I think, boy, that's time travel. Uh, and I don't know what she got out of it because that was a huge black dress and it was well over 90 degrees in Pennsylvania heat. But she was getting a lot out of it. She was getting that period rush, reenactors call it, um, being a widow. So what would it be like to know my husband was killed and have to go find the army to get his body and bring it home? We, we, had, we ran into a photographer who lives in the 19th century. His house has no indoor plumbing or electricity. And the guy goes around with a 19th century video uh, camera taking tintypes at historical events like heritage fairs and battle reenactments. The guy's got a beard. I mean, nothing about him was 20th century. Mm. Well, now it's 21st, but back then it was the 20th. Even his glasses had 19th century rims on them. Wow. Maybe he went to see a, a modern-day optometrist. I don't know. But he washed the prints in a wooden bucket, and and I'm sitting there thinking... The calendar is the only thing that makes us different from a soldier getting his picture taken back in 1863. Mm. Um, I have that that kind of dedication to a period rush. I don't understand. Guy lives outside Elmira, New York, in a house that has no you know no central heating. Thinking how how do you do that in the winter? Yeah, that's amazing. It is. Yeah. We talked a little bit about uh, authenticity uh, yeah. on our previous discussion about this. Uh, I was wondering if you could go in a little bit about authenticity and the importance to the reenactors of it. You people who are into the hobby are very big on the details, the the authenticity. Namely, you just can't wear a polyester or a, a forage cap with a patent leather bill or something. It's got to be the real thing. And... Uh, some people have said, well, these, these guys are really nitpicky. What's, what's the point? Isn't the whole point in your imagination? But it's essential cues also. Um, you have somebody in the wrong color jacket. It's kind of a jarring thing. Now, here's an old movie for you guys to look up and watch. All right. It's called Somewhere in Time. <laughs> Somewhere in Time. I think it was made 1981 or 82. It has Jane Seymour in it and Christopher Reeve. And this playwright, this modern-day playwright, gets obsessed with this actress who was big back in 1912. And he believes that you can travel in time based on something a professor told him. And so he gets clothes made according to 1912. He even gets coins in his pocket and things. And 
and he thinks himself and suddenly he wakes up in this hotel in 1912 and so he meets her and it's <laughs> very romantic movie but at some point they're they've they've fallen in love and she starts criticizing her clothes she says you know really your suit is 10 years out of fashion and he says why no it isn't it's and he's showing her everything he says, look i even got coins and he pulls out a penny from his day <laughs> and it distracts him so much he goes and he she loses him. He goes back to his own time. Reenactors feel that way about the sensual cues. Mm-hmm. You got to have the right kind of tent. Uh, you've got to have your musket and all. You and you shouldn't be. Uh, now some reenactors cheat. You know they'll have, uh, you know, ice chests hidden inside their tents and stuff. But the the real uh, faithful ones say no. You eat hardtack and salt pork and and coffee that you grind yourself on the top of a barrel with the butt of the musket. And or they even have to part yourself, uh, roast. Because if you have stuff, you're going to lose your sense of, of where you are and you're going to lose a lot of the enjoyment of being in the period, being in character. That's another thing. Some of them say if you talk about your everyday, modern-day stuff while you're in a reenactment, you're ruining it for other people. You're supposed to stay in character. I'm Private Jeremiah Olson of the, you know, of the 11th of Minnesota and so that's who I'm going to be. Mm-hmm. A lot of people find it hard to focus on that, but um, a lot of reenactors get their enjoyment out of the idea that I really am in 1862, and there's nothing else going on mm-hmm. that would jar that until a jet from Dulles Airport flies over <laughs> and then <laughs> yeah, kind of breaks the spell, <laughs> as, as it did at one reenactment I was in. And, and so the, the people who organize these events try to find wide-open spaces without telephone wires and asphalt mm-hmm. roads. And they reason. even have terminology, right? A oh. farb. Oh yes. Is can you explain to <laughs> a farb is what you must not be. Um, yes. First of all, you criticize somebody if their gear isn't authentic by saying it's not period. Mm. And if it's not period, very snobby. Yes, <laughs> it's very snobbish. And, and uh, one one critic said, it, "I've only seen uh, gay people in the fashion industry who are that concerned about the thread count." Uh, <laughs> so thread counters has become a word reenactors use for people who are too nitpicky about the details. Mm. Uh, you know, how many threads per linear inch do you have here? A farb is somebody who's not authentic. Really can't find out the root of the word. Some people said, <laughs> oh, it started back in the 1960s when people started doing reenacting, and somebody would come up and say, far be it for me to criticize, but your <laughs> you know, shoes are not authentic. And these guys were just wearing gray work shirts and cowboy hats, they didn't look mm-hmm. like Civil War soldiers at all back right. in those days. But I can't find any real evidence that FARB came from that. So nobody's able to find it. It's It's gone into other fields now. I hear people using FARB for anybody who's uh, a phony uh, or not doing it right. Okay. Cool. But it was born in... It was born in Civil, Civil War. Civil War. <laughs> that, we, that we can verify. Good. So who is... I don't know, keeping track of all the things that people find because of, like, if people view themselves as living historians, like, where is that knowledge going? Where's the knowledge going? Or, like, the discoveries that people make of the period. Okay, there there are some publications. There's a magazine called the Camp Chase Gazette and others where people in reenacting will talk about new discoveries they've made. Look, a museum in Tennessee, we found this kind of fabric being used for regimental uniforms 
These are state-issued uniforms and not uniforms commissioned by the individual regiments. Or they'll say these are from the Richmond Depot, in which case the Confederate government was making uniforms for everybody for a while. And it's not just the men. The women have really gotten into it, especially women who are interested in historical costuming. And they do research and find out, well, this fabric was available because women were using it in their clothes, and it was a common thing. Uh, for instance, they discovered the reason the Confederacy chose gray as their uniform color isn't because anybody liked gray. It was just the single most common color in civilian fabrics, and therefore it was available. And, uh, hmm. and, and, and then after a while they ran out of gray cloth and gray dye. The South didn't have many, many industries. And so people started making homemade dyes that turned out more of, of a kind of a brown color. They called it butternut. Hmm. And uh, I've, I've read things about, um, and a lot of this is discovered by different kinds of living history. But they'd find writings where people used rust and walnut husks, not the shells, but the husk around the walnut, mm -hmm. to make a, a dye, a butternut colored dye. <laughs> and so people uh, would experiment with it and they say, oh yeah, it works. And it looks like the one we found here in the museum or at least in the seams, you know, the fading happens. And, mm. and there's, there's a million places people can go, and they've gone there. Uh, what kind of wool was available? Uh, what color blue was it really? For a while, one reenactment, one company that makes reproduction uniforms, they're called C&D Jarnigan down in Mississippi, they were making Union uniforms, dark blue, but sewn with brown thread, because every uniform they found at the Smithsonian had brown thread in it. But then after a while they changed that because they discovered the thread was cotton thread and the dye used in the cotton thread would change color from dark blue to brown so the mm. new uniforms were sewn with brown with blue thread and mm. so they stopped making the uniforms with brown thread um, more discoveries uh, shoes um, where food was made and how it was made because different companies would contract with the government to make hardtack the hard square biscuit that was the mainstay of the Union soldier's diet. Very simple recipe, flour, salt, and water. Mm, delicious and <laughs> nutritious. And teeth dullers, they call them, or sheet yeah. iron sometimes. They look so gross online. I, I looked it up, and it looks <laughs> terrible. Well, uh, it, it's amazing how good they taste when you're hungry. Yeah, I suppose. Hunger is the best sauce. Yep. Yes, it is. <laughs> um, and weapons, you know, they do research on the regiments. And they think, well, a uh, 58 caliber Springfield rifle was the standard for the U.S. Army, so we figure this regiment had it. And then somebody's research shows, no, in fact, they're using a shorter barrel Austrian rifle because it was all that was available. Mm -hmm. And so everybody in the unit says, well, we either got to change the name of our unit or get the Austrian rifles. Um, <laughs> there are companies that make reproductions of these muskets, and um, and so, you know, they're, they're, they're available. Uh, one group I was in said my musket didn't look right. It was an Enfield, a British-made Enfield. But they said, you're in the U.S. Army, and the U.S. Army didn't allow bluing on the barrel of the gun. So you've got to uh, sand your bluing off wow. so, it, so the barrel's bright. Regulation bright, they called it. Wow. So I took the bluing off of my barrel and the barrel bands, too, and it looked a lot different. It also rusts more easily, but it looks authentic, by golly. Very Do it authentic. or you're a farb. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. I didn't want to be a farb. I didn't want anybody to think I was a farb. Is there anything that they just can't recreate or that they don't? 
Like, what is lost in I the reenactment? I mean, killing people, probably. <laughs> Hopefully, is not. Wounds created. and death. Wounds and death. You're right. Sorry. <laughs> There's a, a book by a, a well-known journalist named Tony Horowitz, who um, he's, he used to be a reporter for the Washington Post and the New York Times during the Gulf War and early in the Iraq War, but he had been writing books mostly about history as it meets popular culture. Uh, he wrote one about Captain Cook not too long ago. He wrote one about uh, Captain Cook's influence in the Pacific. And he wrote one about Columbus. But he wrote one called Confederates in the Attic. And he was looking at how the Civil War still lives on, especially in the southern states. And he ran into this reenactment group, and these guys called themselves hardcores. And there is a division amongst reenactors. Some people who are hardcores scorn the others as farbs. And the others say, the hardcores are just nuts. <laughs> you know, you can't. Uh, hardcores will not bathe for weeks before a reenactment, so they'll smell right. <laughs> now, That's the people at wherever they work necessary. probably object to that. The guy uh, <laughs> urinates on his brass button, so they'll look the right way. It gives them a tarnish. And, and these guys would sleep on the ground. They'd steal, literally steal chickens <laughs> and cook them <laughs> and eat them, and that would be the rations. When the hardcores would show up at a battle reenactment for what they call a tactical, where they're actually going to stage a battle, these guys would refuse to participate. And Tony says, well, why? why? This, is a, this is a battle. This is what reenactors do. They said, it's not authentic because there are no bullets. Oh. And we don't want to do any, we don't want to, uh, I guess they felt like they'd be lowering themselves if they did something that wasn't authentic. And since you really can't reproduce battles with bullets and come out of it alive, they just would not participate in the tactical. They do the marching and the camping and the suffering. Oh, my goodness. And uh, to a lot of reenactors, well, that's the whole point is for the fun of a battle and to be able to shoot off your gun. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what's the point? Like, why do people do that if they're not going to be a part of the battles? Like, yeah, it is the actual. Civil War, after all. It's they, they, they want to live the life of the soldier. Um, mm. And... If I'm going to do a tactical and we're just using blanks, I won't feel the same stress and terror the Civil War soldier did, and therefore it would it would break the mood. It wouldn't um, it wouldn't be as satisfying to me. Hmm. Have you come into contact with these people? Have you? Um, <laughs> I wrote one of them a letter, and I never got any answer back. I just I asked them some questions mm -hmm. while I was Research writing an article, but I didn't get anything back from them. Maybe because it wasn't on the right type of parchment. Type of <laughs> it, it may have been. Yeah, the carrier <laughs> pigeon got lost. This guy had a long, bushy black beard, oh. and, and uh, I can't remember who he actually had a job with, but he'd write articles for the Camp Chase Gazette and and some other things. And and, and people criticize, and some of them are hardcores, when they see a reenactment, they notice the guys reenacting the soldiers are uh, a bit overweight, like me, and uh, a bit demographically incorrect you know I've got this white hair here um, because most Civil War soldiers between the age of 17 and 24 about 85 percent mm -hmm. of them are in that age group mm -hmm. and uh, so you get a bunch of older looking guys and they're in it because they enjoy it but if we're talking about authenticity buddy you need to drop about 40 pounds <laughs> look a little more starved there were no portly people in Civil War infantry regiments mm -hmm. they did too much walking and um, and, and so a lot of hardcores will say, we shouldn't have allowed them in. We, we should only allow them in. Oh, and, and women. Should I talk about women? Sure, absolutely. There's an issue about whether a woman could do reenacting. Uh, there's a woman named Lauren Burgess, and she was a doctoral student in history at 
some university. But she loved the Civil War, and she would come to reenactments. And she's kind of tall and thin, and um, it worked okay, but she came to one re reenactment, and she was registering. The guy says, sorry, you can't register. She says, why? She says, well, you're, you're female. You're not authentic. You didn't have women in the Army. And she says, what difference does it make as long as if I'm dressed in my uniform, you can't tell? Mm-hmm. And she was pretty mad about that, and uh, she started doing some more research and changed the whole course of her dissertation. She started doing research and started finding out many women who were in the ranks, some undetected, like she planned to be, mm -hmm. uh, but some of them were in the Army, and the guys in her unit knew that she was female. In some cases, she was the wife of one of the soldiers. Um, in a lot of cases, they kept their identity secret for years and years, one woman received a pension for 30 years before she finally revealed she was a woman. Wow. And, Smart. Uh, Smart. Got the <laughs> <laughs> it, was, uh, it was strange. And then sometimes there were the wives of soldiers. And, uh, oh, there used to be a sappy song in the late 60s called A Cruel War. The Cruel War is Raging and Johnny Has to Go. And the, the woman uh, singing the song uh, says, I want to go with him. Um, and he keeps saying no, but in the last verse he says yes. Well, why would you want to go to war? But yeah. they did. Uh, among the Confederate dead on the slopes of Cemetery Ridge after the Battle of Gettysburg was found a Confederate soldier and his wife, who were both in the same company, who'd both been killed on the mm -hmm. slopes of that ridge. Um, so Lauren Burgess found this out, and she filed a lawsuit against the reenactment group. Wow. And she says, women are authentic, and you ought to let us in because they actually were in the combat units. I remember reading one journal and the guy says, uh, a lieutenant in our regiment was delivered of a bouncy baby, bouncing baby boy last week. Wow. Nobody knew she was female until then. <laughs> <laughs> Just hit it really well. Yeah, did they not know she was pregnant either? Like uh, for nine she months. She must have wow. got a really baggy uniform. I don't Why? know. Why? Yeah. Wow. But it wow. was, uh, so she won her lawsuit. She didn't uh, claim big damages or money, but she wanted mm -hmm. to make a point. She ended up coming out with a book that talked about uh, women nice. soldiers. And so that's caused kind of a crisis in reenacting. Uh, mm -hmm. Do we let women into our group or not? Uh, and I've seen some reenactment group that have women. Mm -hmm. One group I saw was very strange because women made absolutely no effort to hide their gender. Mm -hmm. um, ponytails, tight-fitting uniforms, and just, you know, you couldn't ignore it. And I think, I, I don't think that was the Farbs. point. All of them. Yeah, yeah, farms. <laughs> yeah, they farms. Um, very often the women in the actual war would be outed as soon as they were, like if they got wounded. Mm -hmm. You know, and the doctor says, whoops, you know. Um, so I notice <laughs> you are a female. <laughs> you're female. <laughs> Might have been a shock to some of them. Um, so, so yeah, that the, the issue of authenticity is a difficult one because... And a lot of it depends on what you're trying to achieve, what kind of effect you're trying to achieve, and w w what you're in it for. Um, yeah, I had a question about that. Yeah. So you're saying some people want to reshape the past, or are you saying negotiating the past? So mm -hmm. who is championing that? And then also, it seems like to me that the like striving for authenticity is like moving away from reshaping the past. So I guess, how do you balance authenticity and then reshaping the past? Okay, uh, that's a good question. 
if you go into reenacting because you want to relive the past, you'd probably be pretty passionate about authenticity, at least the authenticity that matters to you. Mm. Um, you know, and some people take it down to, to the very underwear they wear. Um, to me, I figured, look, everything that's visual is what's important. Um, and so I would let my beard grow for a week or so before, because most soldiers on campaign wouldn't take time to shave. Oh, it's amazing how many did, you know, mm. find a shiny bottom of a pot and get their razor <laughs> and shave out in the field. I just can't imagine that cold water, no soap. Yeah. But uh, But that's an important thing to them. But in, in that kind of environment, it's a strange thing. You you feel like you're there. You're living the same kind of life. You got the smell of smoke in your clothes and your hair, and you're feeling pretty grubby. And the chiggers are biting you, and the fleas are getting you. And the spiders. Last time I went, I had a whole bunch of spiders <laughs> under my blanket when I pulled it up. Oh my gosh! Like um, I am not a farb. I am not a farb. <laughs> I've lived it. <laughs> and in that kind of environment especially when you're staging a historical battle, it feels like, well, I'm there. I can actually like change history. History becomes a very flexible and malleable mm -hmm. thing. So in an uh, article I wrote, uh, I talked about a reenactment of Gettysburg, the 100, mm -hmm. 125th anniversary. I loved that story. Where a bunch yeah. of uh, Southern guys said, we're gonna make a pact. We're not gonna follow the script and fall down when the Yankees fire us. We're gonna get, keep charging and break the line and win the battle. And they couldn't do it. I was talking to one of these guys afterwards. He says, well, we just we couldn't get close enough. Just the force of those muskets firing blanks. Now, they're dangerous enough. You're burning black powder. But that was enough just knock us down. We couldn't even get close. He says, so history repeated itself. And yeah. blankety blank blank, you know. <laughs> he says, well, maybe... Maybe the South will win the Battle of Gettysburg next time we try it. Next time. <laughs> but but you get that kind of feeling, if I'm in this, then I'm doing it. And if I'm doing it, then what I do becomes history. It's an illusion, of course, but uh, some people would argue all history is an illusion. All history is merely rhetoric. It's, you know, everybody's got an agenda. Hmm. So why is that, I guess, that illusion? Why is that important? for people to reenact or recreate or do over and over and over again. Still trying to figure that out. Work in progress. With a lot of them, they figure this is uh, this is America's Homeric age mm -hmm. and I want to be part of it because it will if I learn the suffering they went through and maybe vicariously at least feel the fear they felt and then maybe that will make me more of an American. And and I will understand better what this country means because right now I, I don't understand it from my distance. Mm -hmm. Why would people... And these are mostly volunteer armies and the casualty rates were horrific. More Americans killed in this war than all the rest of America's put, wars put together. Wow. And at the first, both sides couldn't figure out why would they want to fight us just to keep us in the country? And on the other hand, why would they want to fight us just so they could leave the country? We don't, we don't see the point. Mm -hmm. And so I guess to understand that problem, which is still a complex and thorny problem, they say, well, maybe if I participate, I'll know how it is. And I'm not sure I answered your question. That's okay. Yeah. Still interesting. So, and it's, it's more about just, it's, it's more than playing army. You know, I thought, okay, mm -hmm. a bunch of grownups want to fire off guns. 
we've known for a long time big boys like to play with toys, okay? <laughs> but why the reenactors actually relish the suffering was a peculiar thing to me. Because yeah. I thought, you know, I'd just soon go to a motel every night. Mm-hmm. But he's got, I want to sleep out there and in, 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 where the temperature doesn't go any lower than 96 even at night. And the fleas and the discomfort. And my brother in one reenactment, we, we, we got killed. It was pretty clear we got killed because we were sent to the wrong place. Mm. And we fell down and the, the Confederates advanced over us and they were stepping on us. And one guy went down and rifled through my brother's haversack to steal stuff. And, and later he says, he says, that was great. It was like, we were just real, real, real dead guys. And those are real rebels. <laughs> real dead guys. <laughs> and I, I told them if they were real rebels, they would have taken your shoes. Yeah. But um, they, they, they actually revel in the discomfort. One night we started to sing. My brother and I and my cousin, we grew up singing together. And we started singing Civil War songs, the three harmonies, around a campfire. This is the last night of the event. And we got done with a couple of songs and looked around. And instead of just a dozen guys that we started with, there were like 40 gathered around there. Wow. And one guy wipes a tear away and he says, this is what I came for. And we said, what, the music? He says, no, no, this feeling of being here, being lonely and far away from home and singing with fellow soldiers. And I don't know, maybe we feel separated from each other and we miss the kind of camaraderie that we feel was more of society in the past. Mm-hmm. The Civil War regiments weren't raised like modern U.S. Army units are. They all... All the guys in your company you knew. They come from your neighborhood or your town. All the guys in your regiment came from your county. And you already had kind of a built-in camaraderie and and, um, kind of a feeling that we all have stake in this group. And that's good for morale. And some people in the modern army say, we ought to do that again. And others say, no, no, it's better to mix them up. Wow. Wow. Well, thank you for coming on this podcast and letting us question you about your work. And it's really interesting. So thank you. Um, You're welcome. Thanks for tuning in. This was the Zeno Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Zeno Podcast. That's X-E-N-O Podcast. If you have any questions or comments about what we talked about today uh, or suggestions for future episodes, you can email us at podcastzeno at gmail.com. This podcast was brought to you by BYU-Hawaii's Reading and Writing Center. We'll be back next time with more of the look through the nooks and crannies of stories and our consciousness and our history. Thanks for learning by listening.